It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. by the Cranberries. Uh, This is a birthday bumper music selection by my friend Jennifer Sabetti, who is a great friend, a longtime friend, and uh, lives in Minnesota these days. And the last time I saw her was on a trip to Las Vegas. That also happens to be the place that I saw our next guest. It was the year 2012. He had just been nominated for vice president by the Libertarian Party. I was out there at the convention, and uh, we had moseyed our way up to not only he and I, but about six others, to the Lucky Bar at the Red Rock Casino in Las Vegas, and it was music to my ears, spoken like a man that was absolutely trying to get my vote in the general election, which he subsequently did. He said, all right, I'll have a drink with you guys, but I insist that I buy the first round. I'm thinking this is my type of vice presidential candidate. And we settle in, poised to order a drink, and he gets a call on his mobile phone announcing that there's some controversy with who was going to be elected as the chairman of the Libertarian Party and that he has to go and deal with this. We never had that drink together, and more important for my purposes – I had to buy my own drink, which I can assure you was not at all lucky for me at the Lucky Bar. I want to uh, welcome back to the program Judge Jim Gray, who, in addition to being a former Libertarian candidate for vice president, was a former preside is a former presiding judge of the Superior Court of Orange County, California. He also is sort of a Renaissance man. He happens to be a playwright and an author whose books include "Wearing the Robe: The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Court." Uh, good evening or good morning, Judge Gray, and uh, I am hoping that I can cash in on that cocktail whenever we're in the same time zone again. Mr. Morano, it's always fun to be with good people. And, you know, I manufactured a whole story just so I could keep from buying you that drink. Uh, trust wasn't me. easy either. <laughs> that, is, that is the hallmark of any fiscal conservative. So I can absolutely understand that. And uh, I, I wouldn't blame you. Now, um, one of the stories, kind of a serious story, not, not kind of, a very serious story that I brought to the audience's attention yesterday was the story of this uh, Maryland Circuit Court judge, Judge Wilkinson, who had uh, ruled against someone in a family custody case, a divorce case. A couple hours later, that person came to his house and killed him while his wife and child are were home. 
Over the weekend, I happen to be around another friend of mine who's a judge who uh, sentences some very tough people to very lengthy prison sentences. And he said he could absolutely see a scenario where one of these people came out of prison and came after him. And it led to a whole conversation about judicial security and not having judges hurt or threatened or killed, God forbid, because of the what they're doing on the uh, on the bench. What's your take on how the issue of judicial security can be handled in the short term and in the and in the long term? Well, well, Frank, this was a horrendous situation, of course. And, you know, when it comes down to it, we deal with a lot of people, a lot of emotion, a lot of their money, and we affect their lives rather substantially. And uh, there's sometimes people that are not exactly mentally balanced either. But they're really, unless you really realize there's some particular threat, there's not much that we can do. Uh, judges try, I think, universally to shield their home address from, from the public. But otherwise, you know, uh, if you, you want to track people down, you, you pretty much can. If you've, I, I had a threat against my life a long time ago, but at least we knew who it was, and it was a guy who was in prison at the time, so that didn't concern me quite as much. But it's a threat. And, and we're dealing with human emotion and a lot of really important issues, and it's something that you just have to acknowledge. I, I mentioned it in my book, Wearing the Robe, which talks about the judicial perspective pretty much all the way around, uh, considering uh, just, just the history and the evolution of our judicial system, all the various court systems. Uh, and, uh, you know, we're dealing in, in a lot of difficulty, and it's just something you have to to, to be prepared for and, of course, be, be careful about, but you can't jump at shadows either. So absent a specific threat, it sounds like there's very little that society can do. I, I think that's true. That, that, that's true, of course, with almost anyone, if, you, if it comes down to it. Mm. Uh, you know, we're not living in the White House with Secret Service. And, uh, you know, anyone that, uh, gosh, we've had people who are elected officers that have been, been harmed before. It's just, it's the nature of the beast. And, and it's something that we have to be prepared for, but, of course, be, be careful about as well. Certainly. Uh, let me ask you, I, uh, I don't want to spend much time on this because when one mentions the word Trump, it just is an invitation for polarization. And uh, there's really no winning, I think, from a media perspective. But there's a lot of interest in the legal cases of the former president, specifically the gag orders that prosecutors are either seeking or uh, that uh, that one judge has implemented. There was a, an op-ed in the L.A. Times from somebody who I think was a Trump critic who said essentially that the gag order imposed on Donald Trump is satisfying, but it's also an unconstitutional infringement of his First Amendment rights. You've been a judge. I'm sure there have been applications for gag orders before you, but you've also been a candidate for national office. How do you balance the need for candidates to speak out about issues, including the justice system, and the need for a judge to maintain order and not have uh, prosecutors or court clerks um, called out in in tweets to 40 million people? What do you make of the, the debate over the j- gag order in President Trump's case. Well, let me share a deep, dark secret with you that you've probably never heard of before, Frank. Uh, life is complicated, <laughs> and uh, that's certainly true in this situation. We, we've never as a country seen something like this before, but I learned in judicial college, and I, and I bore it in mind the entire time. I, I'm retired now, but I was on the bench for 25 years. You should not, must not 
order something that you cannot enforce. And uh, my goodness sakes, it's critically, critically important that we as a people in our country see the judiciary as not being political. And if you think that you're going to enter into the political sphere there, which they are, uh, it's deeply, deeply concerning. And he does have a constitutional right now. You know, heaven's sakes, he's a candidate for president again. He's an ex-president. So if somebody on the campaign trail asks him about his charges in, in uh, these various circumstances, are you going to prohibit him from being able to respond? I've written about this. I say that we should tread very lightly on it and uh, not issue an order that you cannot enforce and not be seen as being judicial. So I do not believe that that gag order should have been issued. Interesting. People are just talking, uh, tuning in. We're talking with Judge Jim Gray. He is uh, the author of Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Courts. It's available on Amazon and most places that uh, that books are are sold. You know, Judge, I had a, a I have a pretty close friend of mine and uh, he had a, an accomplished career as a prosecutor, had worked in the private sector, worked in the public sector and had really just an incredible resume for a judicial candidate. And I said to him, you know, why don't you run for judge? And I, I think this person could have been elected. There was just a judicial seat created that he would have been perfect for. And essentially what he said to me is, well, unfortunately, what they've done is they've made the job of being a judge so difficult that you really can't be a judge. You're almost there just to uh, just to met out paperwork and apply a uh, a prescripted formula, and you really don't have much of an opportunity to exercise a lot of judgment. That's one of the reasons he chose not to run. My friend Mario, uh, as far as you're concerned, the job of being a judge in America in 2023, do they still let judges be judges? Frank, I, I disagree with your friend profoundly. Uh, yes, we can. We haven't. Just take a step back. We have an absolute mandate. In fact, we have two mandates as a judge. Number one is to to do the right thing as best you can to tr- try your case and make your decisions based upon the facts, the law, and our ethics of our profession. Do justice as best we can. And number two is equally important, and that is for anyone that cares to believe justice is being done. But there's a great deal of leeway. Uh, you have to explain your decision. You know, you're right because because I say so, or you're wrong because I say so is never well received, nor should it be. You have to explain. You have to appear to be con- of concern, and I hope you are. Most judges are. But no, there's a great deal of discretion in, in our jobs as judges, uh, and you can interpret cases differently. Uh, there have been couple of times when I actually felt compelled to find in, in, in favor of someone I didn't feel was appropriate, but I thought that's what the law compelled mm. me to do. So I said it on the record. I don't like this decision, but I can't distinguish this particular law or that statute or this case. And so I hope I'm reversed on appeal. But we have a great deal of discretion as judges, and I disagree with your friend. The um, issue of mandatory minimum prison sentences has become, uh, well, I don't know if it's become, it's always been quite controversial. You have groups, including families against mandatory minimums that are trying to do away with this. The supporters of mandatory minimums say that they're needed in order to make sure criminals don't get away with a, a slap on the wrist from a bleeding heart judge. The opponents of mandatory minimums say that it doesn't allow judges to exercise the kind of discretion that you're talking about. 
Where do you come down on the issue of mandatory minimum prison sentences? I'm against it rather substantially. Uh, you know, you can have some minimums, and, and that's logical. And some another, another deep, dark secret, Frank, that I'll tell you, maybe some judges are better than others, or some are more bleeding heart than others, and I understand that. We're human. But uh, to require, uh, for example, we in California have a three strikes and you're out law that if you're convicted of a third felony, you must go to prison for a minimum of 25 years to life. My goodness gracious sakes, because the first two felonies had to be supposedly violent. But, you know, if I'm walking by your garage and I see you have a bicycle inside your garage and I go in the garage and take it, now that's breaking and entering. That's a felony burglary in California. So now I have one strike. And then if I'm maybe cold on, at night on the at the beach and I light a trash can full of trash on fire. Okay, that's arson. That's a, that's also a violent felony. So then if I'm caught with possession of a small amount of cocaine a little bit later, that's a felony. And I must be sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. No right thinking person would want to do that under the circumstances. So you must give discretion to a judge. Personally, I would, I would take three different judges and have all of their sentences decided by by a three-judge panel, so you would, you know, your 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 judge, my judge, and the, and the others, and then we would sentence as a panel, which would tend to bring it more uh, consistent, and I, I, there would be a lot more judicial effort. But that's where I would come down on this thing. But just t- mandatory minimum sentences make no sense most of the time, and I think all of our listeners could agree upon some mandatory minimum sentences that are simply inappropriate. And, and a judge is, is bound, I've got to follow the law, but it's just inhumane. And by the way, the United States of America leads the world in the incarceration of our people, both by sheer numbers as well as per capita. You know, maybe we're doing something wrong here, and I think we are. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Let me ask you about another mandatory, this being retirement age. My state has a um, mandatory retirement age of 70 for judges. Uh, Most of the neighboring states do. They have, uh, if you're a Supreme Court justice, they let you serve up to 26 if you get three two-year extensions by the governor, but that doesn't apply to civil court judges, doesn't apply to surrogate court judges, doesn't apply to a whole host of other judges in the state that I'm in. I know so many judges that were not just mentally but physically at the top of their game when they were forced off the bench at this 70-year-old retirement age. There's no retirement age in the federal system. I've seen some federal judges stay on the bench and make very meaningful contributions into their 90s. Where do you come down on the issue of a mandatory retirement ages for judges? Uh, Frank, I just don't like arbitrary rules like that. Uh, like you say, there's some <laughs> some that should retire at age 52, I suppose, and others when they're uh, 90 is pretty extreme. But but uh, 
you know, I'm still doing active work as judges, and I was involved as an arbitrator today, which is a private judge trial. I'm 78. I think that I'm doing okay. The, the two, both the parties chose me, so they must have some similar idea for that. Uh, I, I just don't like the arbitrariness. No one, in, no one in Congress can decide in advance without knowing what the circumstances are, what the facts are uh, of the of the various situations. They can't decide in advance. So I believe in discretion, like I said before, and I think that these arbitrary 70 as opposed to 72, nonsense. The Your book, Wearing the Robe, The Art and Responsibilities of Judging in Today's Courts. We do have a lot of judges that listen to this program, but is this book only for judges? Will regular citizens get anything out of this? You know, I, I meant this to be for regular citizens as well as judicial education, as well as people that are interested maybe in becoming a judge. And so uh, it's it pretty well, well-rounded. Uh, again, I go through all of the various court systems, uh, criminal courts, uh, civil courts, and, and the subdivisions thereof. Uh, and there's mental health calendar. My goodness sakes, what a contribution. Or probate, where we have often a lot of family members suing each other after mom or dad dies or mm. something. So this it's important, uh, critically important. I'm proud of our judicial profession. I'm proud of our legal profession. And by the way, what's the best way, Frank, of prevailing in litigation? And the answer is, don't get involved in the first place. <laughs> and our legal profession helps a lot of people avoid a lot of disputes. But if you have to, if you are in a dispute, uh, you know, I, I'm proud to be a judge. And you listen, you explain, you do the best you can. And, uh, and then we're also able, for, for example, mentoring is hugely important in our world. And I was on, for example, a, a juvenile court where uh, I encountered a young man who was her grandmother who's, who had a 14-year-old grandson, and she thought it was an act of love to, us, to show her grandson how to shoplift a jacket from the Target stores. I mean, what kind of a life does that young man expect? Mm. You have, you, but we as judges can stand up. Where one time, again, I was on a different calendar, a, a formal probation violation calendar, and we got reports from the probation department. I have maybe 50 of these people in my courtroom at a time. And if you got three stars from the probation department, you're, doing, you're treading water, you're doing okay. Four stars, you're taking it seriously and you're doing well for yourself. And five stars, you're taking it seriously for yourself, but also for your Confederates, for your other people there. I didn't get very many of them, but occasionally I would. I would call that person up first. I would commend them. I would congratulate them. I'd explain why they had done so well. And I'd get off the bench and shake their hand. Frank, there were two occasions in which young men, probably in their early 20s, broke down in tears in front of me and the rest of the people in the courtroom saying, Your Honor, no man has ever commended me for anything in my life. Now, you know, you do something like that. You, and even if I have to if I have to send them to jail for a while because they didn't carry out the terms of probation. But, George, I know you can do better. Mary, I know that think back when you decided to do this. Don't put yourself in that situation again. You know, you t I know you can do a better job. And it works. You know, mentoring is hugely important, and we as judges can do that. Take the time to show you care and, of course, hold people accountable. Hugely important, but also and give that, that encouragement. We're social workers in a lot of ways in a good sense. 
The you presided, I'm sure, over a number of jury uh, trials. And one of the experiences that I've had in knowing a lot of judges over the years, both federal, state and even a couple of municipal judges, is they've stated to me the majority of the time they feel like the jury gets it right. And if you look at what's happening in Washington, D.C. now, a lot of Americans are wringing their hands at our elected Congress that doesn't seem to be able to do anything. And it has, in part, I think, led to a resurgence of a movement, not just in this country, but around the world, called sortition, where instead of electing politicians to be lawmakers, we would essentially have lawmakers picked the way we pick juries, totally at random. What's your initial reaction to that idea, Judge, of of having sortition to pick lawmakers? I'm not familiar with that term, and and so I, and you've you've caught me off guard on that one. I, I really haven't heard that much about it, so I'd kind of hate to hate to respond. All right. Well, let me give you something that I know you've thought a lot about, and that's uh, the issue of drug legalization. Now, every year, we see more Americans dying of drug overdoses than died in the entirety of the Vietnam War, and with the lethality of fentanyl and other other similar drugs, it seems seems to be getting getting worse where how would you handle the issue of drugs from a criminal justice perspective well as you probably are aware i did something very unusual for a sitting trial court judge back in 1992 and based on my experience i was a criminal defense attorney in navy jag corps i'd been a former federal prosecutor and in Los Angeles, and I'd been a trial court judge for nine years, and I held a press conference. Judges do not do that. And I told anyone that would listen that our nation's policy of drug prohibition had failed us, and we had to rethink it. And if you just go back to alcohol prohibition, which did not work, in fact, at the end of alcohol prohibition, as many people were drinking alcohol as were beforehand. But look at what it did with regard to crime. You know, we brought Al Capone all kinds of extra money. <laughs> and Frank, you're aware of this. We had poisoned liquor. You know, we'd have no no quality control with regard to this. Called it white lightning, and people could drink it and get blind or even die. And that's what we're doing today with regard to these other mind-altering, sometimes addicting substances, which are definitely, definitely, frequently dangerous. But no one, pretty much in our country, has died from an overdose of fentanyl. Fentanyl's a huge problem, but they die from a drug poisoning of fentanyl. They don't even know it's there. So if you were at least to regulate and control these drugs, put them under control of the medical community, and then hold people accountable for what they do. So it makes as much sense to me, for example, to put this gifted actor Robert Downey Jr. in jail for his heroin problem, and he's a self-acknowledged heroin-addicted person, as it would have Betty Ford in jail for her alcohol problem, and she was a self-acknowledged alcoholic. It's the same thing. So it's just arbitrary as to which drug that we choose to make legal or illegal and look at the problems we inflicted upon ourselves when we when we made alcohol illegal. That's not even to talk about the constitutional issue, which troubles me, because we at least realized uh, in passing the 18th Amendment that the federal government did not have the power to make alcohol illegal, so they had to pass a constitutional amendment. Okay, at least they were honest about that. Then they, of course, had to pass the 21st Amendment to repeal alcohol prohibition. So people were really cagey in 1932 
They didn't. They made marijuana illegal. No, they called the, the passed the Marijuana Tax Act. So they made it so cumbersome. If I was going to sell marijuana to you back then, I would have to fill out some real cumbersome forms, and if it's a ten dollar transaction, probably pay a seven dollar tax to the government. Then if I didn't pay the tax, they they charged me with a tax offense. So that was what happened throughout our history until 1970, when Nixon finally passed the Controlled Substances Act. And by that time, people were so accustomed to having these things, in effect, be illegal to purchase that uh, there wasn't a quimper. But it's not constitutional. The U.S. government does not have the constitutional power to get into this area, or even health care, or even uh, education. Judge, we're going to have to we're going to have to end it there. You're going to have to come back because I have a lot of other issues that I'd like to ask you about. Let's. Uh, Let's chat again in a week or two. Look forward to it. Just give me a call. It's always fun to be with good people. I I will. And in the absence of good people, hopefully it'll be just as fun to be with me. Judge Jim Gray, author of the book, Wearing the Robe. Check it out. It's available on Amazon and elsewhere. Calls, questions, comments, thoughts, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to PriorityGold.com. 